When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 119, Henry Gives Owen a Gift. For Owen Glendure, the summer of 1402 was a pretty good one. He had been fairly successful in the summer, winning a big battle that saw many valuable hostages taken, and the English given such a bloody nose that they were starting to doubt themselves and their ability to defeat Owen. The return, or sellback of these hostages created a new dynamic, for the Battle of Wales. Those who were returned to England brought financial gain for Owen, which funded his campaigns and gave him more legitimacy. Meanwhile, for those following this war within the clerical community, Owen was the rod of God's anger, someone meant to humble the chosen people, to make them come back to the faith instead of continually following to wickedness. Now, whether this is a revision by Adam of Usk, writing after the fact, or whether he truly only ever saw Glyndor's revolt as a sign of divine retribution, is anyone's guess, really. After Bringlas, Owen and company went raiding and pillaging throughout South Wales, attacking Newport, Carleon, and Usk. They may even have gone as far as Elfiel, Bulleth, and areas around Ritney on Rwye, which is a small community on the Welsh border in Herefordshire. This was not just a quick attack raiding force, but rather it seemed it was more like a proper army. They destroyed not just small communities or pillaged small areas, but they were destroying all sorts of things. They were taking land. They were destroying the local resistance, capturing wealthy landholders and effectively defeating all the surrounding English and Welsh forces that opposed them. With the losses mounting, Usk had called these Welsh rebels little more than poorly led rabble, but it appears to be something much better organized than that. Owen was maintaining a number of troops now, launching attacks across Wales which were impacting along the borders of the marches in a way that looked much better coordinated and controlled than had been presented, and certainly than what had been previously the case. On top of that, he kept control of these forces to the point where he did, they did not range across the border in any great degree. In 1402, the Welsh War was appearing to be more than a mere revolt. Make no mistake, we're still talking largely of an insurgency, hit-and-run type of tactics, and there was little doubt that the Welsh could do much more than that at this point. However, they were much better coordinated and controlled than in the past. The areas of uncontrolled, localized uprisings were probably now at an end. We're now seeing a much more focused and driven effort 
one that had weight behind it and control behind it in ways that could not have been perceived or seen of happening as recently as, say, a year ago. King Henry likely recognized this and saw that his own position was now teetering on a knife's edge, which might explain why he decided to abandon his cousin, Edmund Mortimer, to the whims of Glyndor rather than paying his ransom. Mortimer was a cousin of the former Bolingbroke, and importantly seemed to have, a, or at least his nephew had, a better claim to the throne of England than Henry did. This must have rankled Henry enough that he decided he really did not need someone others could rally around, and someone with as much weight politically and financially to be able to push him possibly out of office or out of position. Politically, it was a dangerous thing to play this game. Mortimer, of course, had supporters who were likely less than happy that Henry was not bailing him out. Key supporters, in fact, that had helped in the war against Glendower to this point. And that would be a big part of the issue. This attitude, at the very least, would be seen as less than chivalrous, and at most, and at worst, a example of real politique something that would show Henry effectively in the worst light. And if you had any doubts about Henry, this, of course, would do nothing to ease those fears. The English were also dealing with diversions outside of Wales in the summer as the Scots attacked along the border, likely delaying any sort of coordinated move against Glyndor in that summer because many of the English nobles were, of course, taken up with dealing with this problem. In fact, one of the big leaders in North Wales for the English was Henry Percy, who was now leading the English response against the Scots. He met them in a place called Hummelden, and in September of 1402, they would actually catch the Scots returning after a raid, which would then lead to one of the heaviest defeats of the Scots in their history. It was something of a coup for the Percys, and of course they themselves were likely ecstatic for the victory. They had also captured a high number of high-profile nobles, which could then be used to ransom back and load their own coffers on that kind of thing, much as Owen's doing with the English. Uh, and so they must have been quite pleased with themselves at this point between the fact that they had done this and then the fame they had gained for winning such a big victory. But a lot of this was lost when Henry seized the captives for his own purposes, and this cost the Percy's financial wealth and likely signaled, much like Mortimer, that they were to know their place in Henry's kingdom, which would have set them to reconsider their allegiance in a way that would not happen again, at least, until the War of the Roses. The English crown was also seemingly to upset the French through this period. This came about because of the treatment of the Princess Isabella, the former English queen to Richard II. He, had, meaning Henry, decided to finally return her to France a couple of years after he had overthrown Richard. This affront in its own way was then magnified by the fact that he kept the dowry that was paid to Richard uh, for his own resources, likely because he'd already spent it, let's be honest. 
uh, with all the wars he was carrying on. And interestingly, his former allies in the French court were outraged by this behavior. As you can imagine, a lot of these people were related to Isabella, who herself was still a very young girl. They call her basically a, a, a young adolescent, so we're not talking very old. And so this kind of abuse, even in a time period where you would more or less sell off any girl who was 13 years or older to whatever political maneuver you needed to make, this was still seen as something insulting, so much so that Louis, the Duke of Orleans, challenged Henry by letter to a duel, as this was seen as more than a slight. This was something that was leading to a conflict. It was something that would have long-term problems for Henry with the French and would create a lot of the animosity that would lead into the continuation of the Hundred Years' War. The reality of it is, is, is these are more or less, to use uh, a soccer-slash-football term, own goals that Henry is committing. He's giving away so much for his own behavior. I mean, all you have to do is look at what had happened with Owen to see how much his attitude is setting up enemies where there probably wouldn't have been any normally. And certainly some that would have long-lasting effects. While some have defended Henry, it's hard to see how this behavior to his own nobles and to foreign powers can be seen anything other than an example of his inability to be mindful of others. And, to be fair, to be very politic about it, because anybody with any sort of brain in the political field would not try and isolate yourself with so many enemies circling you. As noted... Henry was an abrasive individual. He didn't seem to care who he insulted, who he attacked, who he, in effect, created enemies of. And this tendency would certainly come back to haunt him in great and large and small ways. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 
at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. As we mentioned a few weeks back, Henry launched another attempt to take back Wales, striking into the countryside again in the autumn of 1402. For the English, 1402 seemed to make Owen into a magician, wielding black magic to create storms and weather that seemed to focus on the English in unnatural ways, to the point where it's accused of a tornado having run through the English camps, or things attacking Henry while in said camp. It would cause Henry to waste a great deal of money and anger on the wet marches that were as futile as they were likely annoying and demoralizing. His pillaging and general defeat by soggy, aimless wandering meant that he had done nothing to endear himself to his subjects in England or Wales, and with it the Welsh began to side more and more with Owen, to the point where there were few Welshmen or women willing to fight for him or support the English. John Harding, an Englishman who would serve Hotspur at Shrewsbury and go on to a very successful career beyond that, wrote of this move by the king into Wales in what one can only say is less than glowing terms. To quote him, The King Henry thrice to Wales went, in the haytime and the harvest diverse years. In every time went mists and tempests went, of weather foul that he had never power. Glendour to know, but o'er his carriage clear, Owen had at certain straits and passages, and to our host did full great damage. The king had never but foul tempest and rain, as long as he was e'er in Wales ground, rocks, midst winds and storms certain. All men trowed that witches mad that stowed. Hit the commons, all of them in, on England's ground, Cursed his going to Wales every year, for hay corn were lost, both in fear. Obviously, making the point that they were very, very concerned about this trip into Wales and what would go on. This idea of Owen as a magician or a wizard or in league with witches certainly would have hit people who were in a period when they are very much believers in these kind of things and it would definitely be something that would drive their mentality when you'd watch their king walk into Wales and get defeated seemingly so easily by things that had nothing to do with fighting a war. And as the weather got colder, Henry Percy, Mortimer's uh, relation by blood, by marriage, was able to get the king to relent and begin negotiations to get Edmund Mortimer back from Owen. Owen, for his part, was eager to negotiate. 
even as he married his daughter, Catherine, to Mortimer on November 30th, 1402. This marriage shows that the captivity of Edmund and the king's unwillingness to rescue him had led him to throw his lot in with Owen. It's an important connection, and one that would allow Owen to build allies on the other side of the border, who would be key in this, to this continued war, a fundamental mistake of Henry's politicking that would drop a significant gift into the hands of Glyndor. Glyndor was determined only to speak with people on the English side that were considered sensible by himself. He was upset and annoyed with the attitude of the English, uh, specifically the point that he was out to destroy the English language, as quoted by the Parliament earlier in the year, had particularly set him off, to the point where he just refused outright to deal with anyone of, who believed that kind of what can effectively only be called nonsense. His previous support for the crown was now mistreated, and he was only to trust those who were willing to hear his side fairly, or what he perceived as being fairly. At this point, it is important to understand that Owen likely still had not made any move publicly to declare Wales as a separate kingdom to the English crown, and he had not yet publicly referred to himself as the Prince of Wales. So at least to this point, he had a veneer of, of the misunderstood noble rather than an outright rebel. He was still pushing this agenda idea that he was somehow only really wanting back what he was deserved and that he would rightfully fall back in line with a king who actually was worth following. So in all of this, he still seemingly is presenting, at least to the English, that idea. Of course, we know from his correspondence to Ireland and Scotland, he was definitely leaning into the idea that he was protecting the old British Celtic rights against the evil Saxons. So likely he was already talking about national ambitions internally. Glyndor's price for peace when negotiating with Percy was the right and return of his land that he had previously had control of, and his restitution of his place within the nobility, something that Henry would be unwilling to do even at the best of times. And in late 1402, one has to think that he is at, not at the best of times, and was even more irate with this Welshman, who was demanding such a largesse, in Henry's thinking. Mortimer, for his part, was effectively now working for Owen to try and get border lords and minor nobles on his side. He was, for his part, demanding, or at least suggesting, that Owen was demanding that Richard be returned to the throne, or, if he was not alive at this point, that his nephew, in other words, Edmund's nephew, Edmund, confusingly, be made the new king, and Owen given his rights in Wales. At this point, a lot of people looking at it, a lot of academics have thought that what this referred to is just simply to return the land back to Owen that he had lost and, and his rights within the English nobility, but it's hard to say. This could still be taken much different from what that perspective presents. And as we'll see by next year, he's already changing his mind about what he is deserved and owed and what his demands will be and how the shape of 
the concept of what Wales will become gets turned on its head very quickly in this situation. And all of this builds to that. And mostly these letters are about getting these former associates to collude with Mortimer against Henry to some success and some failure, some important successes and some important failures of some of these lords who will either go on to oppose or collude with either Glyndor, Mortimer, or their new slowly forming ally, the Percys. Of course, the Percys were married in with the Mortimer family and were sympathetic to the plight of Edmund. I mean, they were leading the actual discussions to try and get him back, for example. So one has to think they were fertile ground for this kind of just talk and especially when you add in you know the issue with Scotland and the taking of the nobility there and then Henry seizing them there is some suggestion that Henry had knowingly set the Percys up as scapegoats that would easily be pushed out instead of conflicting with Henry but I think that gives Henry a lot of credit that he doesn't deserve King Henry IV was not some shrewd manipulator of others. Mostly, he appeared to be a bitter and quick-tempered old man who was prepared to do whatever it took to hold on to power. And if that meant isolating himself in the process, so be it. Glyndor, of course, was benefiting from these new allies by the day, ones that would drive much of the early stages of the war and would be very pivotal in creating what would become of the Welsh uh, principality or kingdom, if you want to call it that, that would be established by Glyndor later in this decade. And Mortimer was a powerful asset, one that would be leveraged for all it was worth. And of course, this gift given to him by Henry that fell in his lap at the end of the Battle of Bringlas must have been seen as very fortuitous on the part of Owen. Owen would come across through most of this period, especially, but even going into the latter half of the war with kind of an image of basically being blessed and able to get away with a lot of things that normally people wouldn't be able to do. But I think it's more about the fact that he was very shrewd. He was a very good political person who understood his limitations and his abilities and was able to understand the limits and abilities of his nation. And those kind of things are very, very hard to find. And it goes to show really what the English lost when they isolated him, because had they kept him on side and more to the point, if they'd have promoted him and pushed him like they had done up until Richard II was overthrown, it, we may have seen something of a very different situation. Owen Glendor easily could have ended up in the position that the Tudors were in, you know, a hundred years later, with his line being invested into the monarchy. But nonetheless, this is where we got to, and this is how things have turned out for both the English and the Welsh, come what may, and it's going to have long-reaching consequences for sure, some that are good and some that are bad, but it's these kind of things that will set this all into place. And as the year ended, Owen was now well on his way to the height of the war and his crowning as Owen, 
the Prince of Wales. And uh, with that, we'll leave it for now. Um, we'll probably come back next week with another special episode, a bonus episode, we'll call it. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the last one. And uh, it they will probably feature things that aren't normally stuff we cover in this particular podcast uh ideas and concepts and and things that aren't necessarily maybe directly into the history of Wales but may have other reasonings about it we'll certainly talk a little bit about that uh next week i may just talk about tourist spots and kind of what to expect and those kind of things when and hopefully we are all able to do that again uh until next time everyone you can always reach out to me online at Twitter at Welsh History Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And of course, you can always reach me via email at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns. If I can, I will try and answer them. I can't guarantee I'll have all the answers, but if I don't, I might be able to help you point you in the right direction. Thank you once again for all your kind comments and uh, questions and corrections. Very appreciated. Thanks a lot, everybody. Take care. Have a wonderful, wonderful day, and we'll talk to you later. Goodbye now. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.